Hello, Line Cook Nation. This is Ray DeLucci with the Line Cook Thoughts Podcast. I hope you all are doing well. Um, I'm back home in Buffalo right now. I got a week to go and visit my family and whatnot. And on this week's episode, I just wanted to talk a little bit about having empathy in the kitchen. Uh, empathy is a word that I think is being used a lot more. Mainly, I mean, obviously, it's been a word that's been around. Uh, Gary Vaynerchuk has been branding his new wine brand, and he's called it Empathy Wines. But I really think empathy... Uh, in the kitchen is something that's overlooked and not necessarily for the guests. I mean, we're going to get into why I think it's important to have empathy for your guests, but also for kitchen workers, because when you're in a kitchen and you're working so much, the task can be so monotonous and so, you know, not boring, but it's just like you're doing the same thing over and over and over again. And I think we don't focus enough on thinking about the cooks that we have or the people that we have and how we kind of can feel for them and get them excited to come in every day and get them to be a part of the bigger picture. So I'm very excited to talk about why I think empathy is an important resource when you're a chef or when you're even a cook in a kitchen trying to grow in leadership roles and whatnot. I just think it's an important thing to talk about. I know the best chefs I've had were ones who were empathetic with me and took time out of their day to ask me how I was doing or tried to understand where I was coming from in terms of my point of view. So I think it's very important to have this skill with you when you are in the kitchen and I think it's very important to be present when you are using that skill. So, like I said, I want to talk about that a little bit later. Um, but also, I wanted to talk about uh, Danny Meyer. I got to go to Shake Shack for the first time, and I was really blown away. Um, because with him, I don't know, he's one of those people that I don't ever hear a lot of people saying, oh, he's my favorite chef. But for me, he's one of my top people in the industry who I look up to because he's built an empire of restaurants. He's built a restaurant group that is so well-regarded, so well-known, and just so well executed that it's just hard to not adore his work and really look up to the example he set and the path he's paved for young cooks like me who are trying to make something of themselves in this industry. I mean, everything from Union Square Cafe to Gramercy Tavern to, you know, Shake Shack. I mean, he has it all. He is, his reach, his influence touches so many people. A lot of people who eat at Shake Shack don't even know who he is, but he is someone who truly is an icon in the restaurant industry and it's something that i think i just want to talk a little bit about and i wanted to start it out with why i thought shake shack was so impressive to me and why i just think that his whole mantra his whole you know demand in the industry his whole presence in the industry is something that's very important for cooks to look up to and understand uh, i would definitely suggest reading setting the table if you have not just a whole book dedicated to being you know better in service and being better for the guests and just how to run a successful restaurant and it's a must read for anyone who wants to own a restaurant in the future um, i know i definitely read it i actually plan on rereading it after i read the book i'm reading now um but yeah i mean that's something that i really want to start getting into and discussing after that i want to start talking about impossible burger impossible meats um though it seems like the race for uh a meat substitute is really starting to get some friction in terms of money making uh, Impossible Burger just released uh, that they've made a significant amount of money through fundraising and support and donors and investments. And I am really excited to talk about this because I was able to try the Impossible Burger two years ago uh, at my school. Uh, it was a part of a tasting that a couple of us got to do at school. And it was really mind blowing when I had it. Um, and I'm not a big person to really get into the whole meat substitute things. Um, I really I don't enjoy a lot of fake bacon. Um, I actually I haven't had a really good fake bacon, to be honest. And I was very skeptical, um, especially when you come from Buffalo, New York. You don't have that type of uh, open mind sometimes of 
other things that can be out there besides just regular meat, uh, something that could taste just like meat. But I find that the Impossible Burger for me is something that tastes really close and it's, I think, an enjoyable thing to eat. Um, I wanted to talk about what I like about it, what I dislike about it, and how I've, because I've been able to prepare it and I've been able to like cook with it and use it um, in a restaurant setting. So I really want to just talk about that. Uh, for a little bit because I think it's important that we are open-minded to what else is out there besides just the products we have. And I know that a lot of consumers are going to be demanding um, the Impossible Meat in the near future. I mean, I already know Burger King put out uh, the Impossible Whopper, and I know a lot of people are starting to get educated on it. And I think, though, it's something that's so still so young, still so new in terms of this meat that really is starting to feel and look like actual meat. And I think there's a big opportunity for us to get in there and kind of get our foot in as chefs and kind of try to understand and innovate with it. Uh, so I just wanted to bring that to your attention because I think it's important. And after that, um, we'll go over some line cook thoughts and we'll just, you know, we'll chat a little bit about what I liked about the week in terms of thoughts and whatnot. Sorry about the lack of content the last two weeks. Uh, I've just been very busy with coming back home and whatnot. Um, but yeah, I think the I'm very excited for the episodes coming up uh, this whole week. I have a couple of interviews lined up and I'm very excited to share those with you. Um, I'm actually about to do one right now. Uh, But yeah, I'm just very excited for um, what's to come in the next couple of episodes. My last thing I would ask you to do is please, 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 please download the Anchor app, look up my page and send me your Anthony Bourdain quotes or the reasons why Anthony Bourdain inspired you. There's only about two weeks left. The deadline's May 29th. And I know he's touched a lot of you in terms of how you get into the industry and why you cook day in and day out and how you've gotten inspired to cook and become a chef or whatever you do in the industry. And I just think it would be really cool that our whole Line Cook Nation kind of got out there and did what we do best. And that's come together and just, you know, share uh, our thoughts and our stories. And it would be really honorable to share why Anthony Bourdain meant a lot to us. So please download the app, send it to me. Um, it it takes literally four minutes to do, if that. And it just, I just think it would be really cool to share with the rest of the chef community what we're all about. So without further ado, let's get into this episode. And like I said, thank you so much for listening. It means a ton for you all to tune in every single week. This is already episode 31. Uh, It's crazy how time's flying. And I'm so excited for what the future holds. But thank you so much for listening, Line Cook Nation. It means a lot, uh, more than you know sometimes. Um, But yeah, I'm very excited and let's get to it. So when you're in a kitchen, um, I think it's very important to begin with that you get to know everyone. So a big thing for me when I go into a kitchen is to go in and shake everyone's hands and introduce myself to them and get to know a little bit about them, especially when you start a new job. Because if you don't do that, you're not going to get the kind of connection and the kind of just camaraderie that you're looking for. You know, the kitchen is a team. And when you're working, you need to be able to work with your teammates, your team members, your colleagues. And if you're not able to connect with them and you're not able to get to know them, um, it can be difficult. And I know starting out in a kitchen it can be very intimidating. Um, when you start on a new job, it's always intimidating, but especially in a kitchen because a kitchen has a system and it has a way of doing things and every kitchen has its own way of doing things. And so when you're doing, when you're going into a kitchen and you're brand new, it's for me anyway, it's very intimidating because I don't want to get in the way and I don't want to disrupt the machine that is the kitchen. And I know when you first get into a kitchen, you don't know where anything is really. It's You have to figure out where like the cooler is and where the dry storage is and where to find pots and pans and rubber spatulas and whatever else you may need. And it can be very challenging at first. And I think the easiest way to kind of get 
yourself into the kitchen culture and embrace where you're working next is to introduce yourself to everyone and try to make a connection with them. And I think in doing so, you're able to develop empathy. And so what I want to talk about first is how you can be empathetic as a colleague. Um, So for me, I always try to think of what the other person is going through. Like whenever someone's rude or whenever someone's, you know, just brash with me or whenever like they're trying to show me something, but they're like really like just abrupt and it doesn't seem like they're taking the time to really give me their full attention. It's for me, that's, I try to put myself in their shoes. You know, it's hard to train people. Maybe on your first day, you're getting trained by someone and they have a long prep list to get done. Or maybe they're, they're, um, they just have a lot of work to get done because the day before they weren't able to prep as much or they weren't left with enough prep. And so now on top of that, they're training you. And so when you first start in the kitchen, I just really think you need to be a little bit more lax in terms of allowing the person who's training you to have those, you know, not faults, but the little issues that they might run into or that you might run into that might throw you off a little bit. Because at the end of the day, they're doing their job. They're doing what they need to do to get set up for the shift and they're training you. And every kitchen should have some sort of training um, person or some head of training or like someone who is able to, you know, handle the workload and whatnot. But there are those days where you just are under and you need to be able to go ahead and get your stuff done and you still have to train someone. So I think it's very important, first and foremost, when you're starting a new job to show empathy to the person training you and just realize that, hey, you know, you know, don't don't do anything different that you might normally do, like ask questions, be assertive, be able to. Um, take initiative, but also realize that if they like maybe snap you or like maybe you know not snap, but they just seem like rushed. It might, it's probably not you. It's probably because they have such a big workload. And I see a lot of new cooks go into kitchens and they are training under people, and the cooks who are training, you know, are a little hectic, a little um, frenzied because they have a little bit more to do. And it's not that they're upset about it. It's just the nature of cooking in a kitchen. And I see you know, people who come in a new kitchen sometimes, I've seen this in school and whatnot too, they can be very like, just like put off because the person who trained them seemed like they didn't care or they were like rushing. And it's not like at all that. It's more just the fact that, you know, they have a job to do, like I said. So I think when you start on the kitchen, you have to be very empathetic of who's training you, who's showing you around and kind of who's really just giving you the most or like who's giving you your most attention but like you just have to be there and help and i think the best way to start helping in the kitchen is just like clean uh start sweeping the floors start cleaning off surface areas just make yourself useful in some way because there's always a way you can be used in a kitchen there's always something to do and that's why i love working in industry is i know that no matter whenever i go into work there's always something that could be done something that could be clean more or whatnot so go ahead and you know sweep the floor if someone's behind you know uh, take their stuff to the dish pit, uh, go wash the dishes for them. Like do whatever they need to help, to help them be more effective in teaching you. And I think that's important. I feel like a lot of people don't see it that way. Like you need to help someone in order for them to teach you more. Like if you're able to give them more time, they're going to dedicate more time to showing you things. And so I think that's a very important aspect when going into a kitchen is being useful in a way so that you can be able to be taught and be able to just be able to like learn and grow with someone and be able to understand that if you take up less of their time in terms of like you know not being understanding of what they're doing then you're gonna have more time to be taught and it's just like this balance of time give and take that that person has with you and you have with them and you just have to really be I think very you just have to take initiative and be able to go ahead and show them you know hey I can clean and help you out just you know give me something to do and don't be afraid to take the risks and don't be afraid to do things that they ask you you know um, I think it's very important that someone 
in a kitchen who's starting is able to show that they have good knife skills and that they're able to work clean and that most of all, they have the confidence to be in the kitchen. I think that's a big thing. And I know I've talked about it on this podcast before, but being confident is key. Uh, confidence will make or break you. You can taste when your food isn't, when you aren't confident, you can taste it in your food. And when you cook without confidence, you will most likely mess up. So even though you might not be like the best cook, I know I'm not the best cook, you still have to have a certain air of confidence in that, all right, I've been training for so many years, I at least know this or that, and that's going to lead me to being able to be at least somewhat successful in my role right now. Uh, the final thing I can think of in terms of being empathetic to a kitchen, in terms of starting out as a, in a kitchen, is that every kitchen does it their way. Every kitchen has their own system, and every kitchen just, you need to be able to learn from people. You need to humble yourself and be able to learn techniques. Uh, whenever I go to new kitchens, I'll even like let the cook show me how they dice an onion, like simple things, like just be an open book, retain the information you've had from past jobs and really, you know, have your knowledge there, but allow yourself to be shown how to cut an onion by someone else. Allow yourself to be shown how to do a simple task, maybe that they do differently because the pride you get or the pride they will get when you teach someone or they teach someone is what's going to build a relationship between you and them. Um, I think really think the relationship in kitchens comes from people showing other people how to cook and teaching other people. And I think that's how you gain those really solid teams. And so I feel like when you are able to do that, then you're able to build relationships that last throughout the year, two years, however long you are with that kitchen. So allow yourself to be an open book and allow yourself to be taught because it's so important. It's so important to just let yourself be open to these things and let someone in. And I know when I first started culinary school, I wasn't like that. I was very brash. I was very like, I know this and that. And I was crazy because I only had like a year experience in the professional kitchen. Um, but, you know, I really learned really quickly that I really don't know anything about cooking. And I still don't. There's so much I need to know. There's so much I need to learn in this industry. And if you're not able to humble yourself and you're not able to kind of Put your head down and allow other people to show you what to do and show you how to learn. Even if you're going to be in a managerial role, then you're not going to get the trust from them. You're not going to get the relationship you want, and you're not going to get the end up the final product that you want to end up with. So I think it's very important to be humble and allow yourself to be molded by a kitchen so that you're able to, you know, you're able to build a long-lasting team and not just a bunch of people who come in and work every day. Uh, the next step I want to talk about being empathetic uh, from um, like a, someone who has more manageable experience or what I at least have noticed and I want to impart on the podcast listeners is that I think it's important that you have to find out what excites every person in the kitchen. Each person has their own values, has their own goals, has what they believe in and what they want to do in life. And each person has different reasons why they've gotten into food. Each person has different reasons why they're excited about food. I think it's very important to find that excitement. I think as a chef, I think the most successful chefs I've had were the ones who were able to find out what excites me and let me work on that more. Yes, you're going to have the monotonous tasks of peeling onions and garlic and doing those things day in and day out. That's basic prep stuff and that needs to happen. But you can give different projects to different people based on their interest. So maybe someone's very interested in fermenting or pickling and you have a fermented or pickling item on the menu or someone wants to learn that. Um, that's a great thing to give off to them. That's a great task to give to them. Someone's interested in making pasta and you have fresh pasta on your menu. Show them one day why you know how to make pasta and eventually they'll be able to prep it for you. So instead of you just doing the dish or the pasta all by yourself, you'll be able to do it with someone else now. There's so many things you can do, but at the end of the day, you need to empower the people who work for you and work with you and you need to empower them through 
giving them what they value and showing them how to do things. I think it's so interesting when, you know, chefs come in and they're relevant and they're able to like tell me what's going on in the industry or they recommend me a cookbook or they're able to like just tell me like they're excited or they go on foraging trips. Like I think all of that's really cool. And I think when you have a leader in the kitchen who's so in tune with the industry, in tune with where the industry is going and is in tune with how like what his kitchen or her kitchen is excited about, it just leads to a lot of great um, camaraderie. So I think that is how you need to go at it because you need to put yourself in the shoes of the other person and be like, all right, they're interested in this. Maybe they're not interested in what I'm interested in, but they're interested in something else. And we can kind of fit that into the equation in terms of their prep list or what they do or the dishes we put on the menu. And at the end of the day, that should be it. Your dishes should reflect what your cooks want to cook. Your dishes should reflect in a way like what your cooks will have pride in cooking. And it should reflect them, you know, based on their skill set, what they're able to do. Um, I don't like it's, it's good to push boundaries and it's good to, you know, want your kitchen to evolve. But you also have to know the skill set of your workers. You have to know what they're willing to do and what they're able to do. And you can't overburden them because you're just going to bury them in prep and, you know, dishes and food and services. And it's just not going to be a great time. And you just have to understand, as I think my generation needs to understand, because we all love fine dining and the intricacy of food, that we have to think about how it felt to be a stagiaire. We have to think about how it felt to be that low-level prep cook in a kitchen, Um when we get our restaurants, because we know what it felt like to just be doing that day in and day out. And I know for one, I don't want to be the type of person who makes anyone feel like they're stuck or that they're just stuck doing the same prep thing. I mean, yes, you're going to do prep day in and day out, no matter what, but it should be evolving and changing as the person gets more skills and whatnot. And a lot of these big institutions, I feel, have stages go in and they do the same thing over and over for free, which we'll be talking about on the episode this Sunday. But I do think that my generation needs to be the one who kind of breaks away from that. And we I did a whole podcast with Chef Jenny Dorsey that'll be out this Sunday just talking about this. So I don't want to get too in-depth on it. But I think the culture needs to change to where we need to pay people fairly. We need to... I don't know. I mean, I, I see the value in staging. I think everyone should stage at least once or twice. But I feel like even a stage should get paid. And I know that you know, it's hard for, to run margins in a restaurant. I know it's difficult and I know I'm young and you might not want to hear what I'm saying, but like, it's true. Like everyone deserves to be paid for their work. Everyone is, everyone offers value to an institution when they're working, whether it's prep or whether it's plating the final dish, everyone in that institution has putting value into that kitchen. And for me, I just don't think it's fair to, I, I don't know. There's something cynical about, you know, oh, you're going to work for free to get knowledge. Like, no, like, at the end of the day, a lot of the people who work for free for a lot of these kitchens makes it possible for them to do what they do. And if none of them showed up one day, I don't know what they would do in terms of prep. And so I think, you know, I think equal pay, I think fair pay in the kitchen needs to start happening. And I think it needs to start with stagiaires. I think it needs to start with, you know, the people in the kitchen. And I'm all for, you know, going to work I mean, if you work a day for free, sure. I mean, I mean, I've done it. I think it was cool. I would go learn for a day, but at the same time, I know in my restaurants, I want to pay the people who work for me because I know that they're giving me value, and I know that every cook has a value, no matter your skill set. If you're doing something for a restaurant, you have value, and I think that's the biggest thing I want to get to. I think this is the biggest way to be empathetic towards cooks is paying them at least something when they come in and stage for a day. I think it's so important that we have an industry now that has a standard of no free labor because. 
you know, we're an industry built on a lot of like free labor or paying workers less than they are able to manage their lives with. And so that means they have to get two jobs. And I think that's something we need to change because the restaurant scene is beautiful uh, and it shouldn't be built on people struggling financially. It shouldn't be built on people struggling to figure out how they're going to pay rent each and every day. And I know a lot of cooks will disagree with me and say it's a rite of passage and all cooks are like this. And a lot of people wear it as a badge of honor on their shoulder and I mean, it's cool if you do that. I have no problems with that. But me personally, I don't think it should be that way. I think, you know, everyone should be able to afford to live. And I feel like a lot of people who get into the food industry don't see it that way and don't see the value that they hold in themselves and don't think, yeah, I do deserve to be able to be paid fairly. I do deserve to not have to worry about money every month. I do deserve to be able to just, you know, go to work and I'm not saying these people are going to get rich in cooking, especially in line cook positions, but be able to at least support themselves and be able to live a life that isn't always about stress. And I think, you know, we talk a lot about mental health in the kitchen and getting into those topics. A lot of it comes from financial stability. A lot of what we know as mental health anguish in the kitchen called in the kitchen industry, the food industry comes from people not knowing how they're going to pay rent this month or having to work two jobs because there's no time for rest. There's no time for, you know, just recuperating and kind of that peace and serenity you get maybe on a day off or half a day off even. And if you're struggling financially, you're just not able to find that. And so I think that's the standard we have to push for. That's the standard I want to push for when wherever I'm going. And I hope this podcast in some way helps someone realize that, you know, if you're listening right now and you don't, if you're not sure if you should be getting paid, you have value. I can't stress that enough. And I hope this message reaches more than just me because I think it's important. And I think this is the best way to show empathy as a restaurant is to pay the people who come in and stage because it shows that you care. It shows that you're not going to take anything for granted. It shows that when you pay people, when people come into work, you value them and you need them to come in and you need them to help you out. And even if they stash for a day and they maybe they aren't as effective as a full-time member, they still put some effort into your goal, your dream as a restaurateur, and you should be get, repaying them in some way. Because if you don't, I don't know. I just don't, I don't know. I just don't think it's fair that you wouldn't. Um, and for people who work for you, I think you should be paying them at least the amount to live. Um, I, I don't think that's too far off to ask. Uh, I don't think that's too absurd to ask. Um, but yeah, th- that's my take on it uh, in terms of being empathetic to the people who might work under you in the future. Like I said, I'm young, but I'm going to stick to my values and I don't want stages coming in for free because I just don't think that's right. And I know a lot of people are kind of, it's going to come off weird to some people. I know a lot of people are going to be like, well, what are you talking about? But I don't know. I just don't think it's fair. And if you agree or disagree, you know, let me know on Instagram. This is an open conversation. Um, you know, this is a platform for us all to discuss. And if you think staging for free is something of value, I mean, I would definitely love to hear your thoughts on it. It's always an open conversation here at Long Hook Thoughts. But yeah, that's kind of what I, that's my thought on it. Um, but I do want to get into, you know, that, that being said, our generation, the kitchen culture begins and ends with us. I mean, I feel like something that's holding the kitchen industry back or it's held it back until very recently is that excuse that oh it's always been this way and that's how it's going to be and i feel like we're in an industry where you know it's okay sometimes i feel like people think it's okay to yell at others and demean others and make others feel like crap but at the end of the day you need to understand that if you went anywhere else with your career if you did that you'd get fired and so like we should have that same standard in the kitchen 
And there should be no excuses, no BS excuses, oh, because we're in high-stress environments. It doesn't matter. You have to treat other people with respect. You have to treat other people fairly and considerately. And if you can't do that, if you can't manage that, you shouldn't be managing anyone. And that's kind of my view on that. And so now, uh, after that, I want to get into um, why the podcast is out a day late. So basically, today I went out foraging. Um, I haven't been able to forage in almost two years because, well, the first year I did, but I was unsuccessful because we went a little too late in the season due to getting back to school at a later time. And then last year, I was out in California, so I was out farming. I I did a, we did a little bit of foraging, but that was more going on farms and whatnot. So this is the first year in like two years that I was able to really get out there and go forage. And so basically, I live in uh, upstate New York and Buffalo, as you all probably know by now because I've said it a bunch of times. But um, we went about an hour and a half um, south of my house, and we have a cabin there that we stay in. Uh, we hunt, hunt there, fish there, you know, basically just it's a place to go to get back to your roots and we go there once in a while um and my dad my good buddy david and i went out yesterday and went foraging and it was really cool because you know you go so obviously my my family uh obviously hunts there a lot and in season but you know like around the spring and fall it's kind of turkey season and when you're out there my dad was like noticing there's like this garlic smell and he said this a while ago and it, I didn't really remember it until I started learning what ramps were. So uh, last year I was like, hey, like I sent him a picture and I was like, hey, make sure you go or just go check. Go see um, if there's any ramps out there. They, this is what they look like and see. And he brought one back and he was like, yeah, we have these. Um, so went out yesterday and was completely shocked because this land I've lived on uh, or at least have been visiting my whole life had this bounty of ramps. Um, if you don't know what a ramp is, it's called a wild onion. Um they have these nice uh, green leaves. Uh, they have two leaves per stalk, and basically it's a bulbous little onion that tastes really good. It only comes up about four weeks, four to five weeks in the year, uh, typically around right now, or this is the season we're in right now, around the end of the season. And yeah, I mean, they're easy to find and hard to find. I mean, if you don't go at the right time, or if you don't really go in the right area, they might not be there. And I, when we were driving up, I was like, I don't even know if we'll see any, um, but like literally within five minutes, we saw a ton and we just kept seeing more. And I was very fortunate to have seen these because I know a lot of kitchens in Buffalo and elsewhere love ramps and we were able to actually get 12 pounds yesterday. And so I'll get into the story of ramping. So basically, um, we went out and got our boots on and we went and started walking in the woods. And if you know what a ramp is, um, they're pretty easy to identify. They grow a lot in clusters. Um, so they're like little patches here and there. And our uh, forest, our woods where we, you know, or the land that we own had a ton of them. And, you know, to be responsible, you only, you only take a little bit from each section because you don't want to just obliterate the crop. You want it to come back up next year. You want to be sustainable about it. And I mean, there are so many yesterday that you know, we barely left the dent in how much we're in our area. And it, it was crazy to us how much there really were. Um, but yeah, I mean, they're really not hard to forage. Uh, you basically just expose the root and you have a knife on you and you kind of take, you cut at the root. So you leave the root in the ground. Um, that was advice that I got from Chef Kaywork, who was on the podcast before. If you don't know who that is, or if you haven't listened to the episode, uh, go listen to that one because he was a great resource for me and he still is in terms of all things foraging or just food knowledge in general. Um, so we went out and we foraged and yeah, I mean, I loved it. I love 
going out and, you know, I talked about this in the last week or a couple weeks ago, the podcast about spring. Uh, I just loved going out and looking. Um, I didn't see any more owls. Um, saw like, a couple fiddleheads, but they were really small. Uh, but really, it was just the ramps that were the most important thing. And I think there's just something something beautiful about going out and foraging. Um, it's a little scary, even though I know what a ramp is. Um, there's always a thing in the back of my mind that I'm going to pick something that I'll eat and get sick or, you know, worse. But um, it's fun. I mean, it's really cool. I mean, obviously, you have to know what you're doing. I don't, uh, I don't, I don't want anyone to go out picking ramps or anything if you don't really know what it looks like. Um, I'll only pick ramps because that's all I know um, until I learn more uh, from someone who's more of an expert at the art of foraging their own food. But yeah, I mean, it was really cool. Uh, we, like I said, we spent about an hour and a half. We got about 12 pounds. And it was funny because I was picking and, you know, you're bent over, you're picking. And we were by this creek uh, in the back of our woods. And all of a sudden I hear this rustling and I'm like, oh my God, what is that? And a turkey, this giant fat turkey just lands right in front of me and just sprints in the opposite direction. And it scared the crap out of me. And obviously my friend and my dad were laughing, but it's just crazy, you know, being out in nature and like those weird things happening. I was surprised it had stayed there so long because it was up in the tree just sitting. And usually, you know, you would think they would scurry away, but no, this thing, this turkey just was up in the trees waiting to attack me <laughs> as a joke we made yesterday. But, um, yeah, I mean, just going out and finding that food and foraging and being with the wildlife and just going out and, you know, been in New York City the last couple of months to just be out in the woods with the water flowing and all the bugs and the birds and, you know, turkeys almost attacking me. There's a certain beauty to it. Uh, just be out there in the quiet and just, you know, have it be peaceful and have it be calm and not have the distractions of everything else around you. And for just an hour and a half focusing on collecting this, you know, onion, this allium that you're going to end up eating and preparing for your family. And it's really just a great experience. And if you haven't gone foraging for ramps, I highly suggest you do so. Um, this season, you probably have one week left. So make it this uh, next weekend count. Um, maybe two weeks. I don't know. I think you would have two weeks, but I'm obviously not an expert. But based on some of the sizes of them, they still had some time to grow. Um, but yeah, I mean... I just loved it, and I hope to learn more about foraging mushrooms uh, and foraging more of just my food. Uh, my goal at some point is to stay in the Hudson Valley for a little bit and just, you know, later on, way later on in life and, you know, try to forage as much food as possible and try to eat like that, and I think it's a very interesting topic. It's also interesting, though, because this, as with everything else, you have to be very conscious, and Chef Kayward kind of opened my eyes to that in the podcast interview we did is... You know, I mean, it's common sense, but you still have to be sustainable in foraging because that is a resource that if everyone goes out, um, it depletes. So being mindful of how much you take that year in correlation with how many people are going out and just being mindful of what your impact is on the area around it. You don't want to just like destroy the dirt and everything around the area. Otherwise, things aren't going to grow or the ecosystem is going to get disrupted. And I think even when you do tasks like that, where you're out in the woods and, you know, you're like, wow, I'm like being sustainable, getting my own food. There's still a sustainable way of getting your food and so i would be very disconscious and very open-minded and just remember that you know this earth is uh what we have and what we're given is not to be taken for granted and you know it's days like yesterday or today i mean sorry when i um go out and find this food and find these moments where i'm just totally blown away by what it means to be a chef i mean this is a plant that 
has been there my whole life. Like I said, this is a place I've been going to visit my whole life. And to have this plant be something I could have eaten this whole time and not knowing and becoming a chef and realizing that there's so much more to food out there than just what you find in a grocery store is truly magical and it's truly inspiring. And I think that's why I love this industry so much. It's why I don't think I'd ever want to be anything else. Um, the food industry has given me so much uh, lessons on life and what I can do with my life and what else can be available in life. And you don't find that really outside of our professions, meeting the farmers and meeting the people who go get these different foods and really just meeting the chefs who create these foods. And, you know, I feel like a lot of the industry is always in competition with each other, trying to be better than each other, trying to prove something. And that's great. And, you know, and we've been lucky to get some really great food. But at the end of the day, we all have to remember that we're just people who love food and want to achieve different things through it. And whether that means, you know, cooking because it makes you feel good or cooking because it's a legacy builder or cooking because, you know, you want to pay homage to a grandmother or grandfather or the way your country cooked it. Now you're in America and you want to cook something, you know, you want to bring that to America. Whatever your reasons, um, I feel like we just have to be very open-minded and very, I don't know, just allow ourselves to be more engaged with each other. Um, I feel like our industry is very cutthroat. Uh, and I mean, that's not, that's an obvious thing. A lot of people know that, but I don't think it has to be that way. Um, and this goes kind of ties into the whole empathetic thing. I know I talked about empathy in the kitchen, but now just talking about how I feel as like a chef, you know, I used, I, I'll admit it, when I was started culinary school, I used to knock uh, chefs on TV. I used to knock people who forage. I thought it was like a hippy dippy thing to do. Um, I was very closed minded. I was very young and dumb in this, and naive in the sense that I didn't know what was going on. So I just wanted to try everything out because when you think you know everything, you don't really want to know more. And what going to school and working in kitchens has taught me is I really know nothing, um, not only about cooking, but about the world entirely. And when you're empathetic to maybe someone who does forage and you go out and do that and realize how much it takes and then realize that when you're cleaning ramps, you want to be perfect with them because someone was out in that in that forest for a couple hours only to get a couple pounds of ramps because you know, they're very labor intensive. Um, picking them is very labor intensive. If you're going to pick them in a very sustainable way, cleaning them can be intensive because you have to take that skin off the ramp. Um, you know, there's like an outer peeling that you have to take off that's full of dirt and whatnot. And, um, otherwise, you can't really eat it. And someone to I don't know, prepare them because they're small. So you need a good amount of them, whether you're pickling them. I know I, know I pickled them uh, with vinegar, salt, sugar, pickling spice. Um, you know, that's kind of basic thing that I've been using or that I used when I was pickling. But um, yeah, I mean, it's just very, there's so many different ways to use them, but it's always important to remember, like, you know, this took a long time to get. Um, and I think that's how you start to gain empathy in the industry is you go out and do things like forage, you go out and do things like, for me was going to um, help process 40 chickens one time or going to help Douglas Hayes, a good friend of mine, to process a couple of chickens at his sanctuary uh you start to feel what it is that other people do for you in terms of getting food to you so you're able to cook and it's an important skill to have being empathetic um, because you're able to understand really most of what it means uh, in terms of what you're cooking with uh you have an emotional connection you have something that's very much stronger than just you know just getting it out of a bag you're getting it out of um, a piece of plastic. I mean, yes, that's how it's going to come, but now you know the story behind it. And so I think 
every chef should forage at some point. Every chef should, if you're going to cook meat, take the life of an animal at some point. I just think that's a responsible thing to do. Um, and if you don't, if you're vegetarian because you don't enjoy taking the lives of animals, I mean, I, I respect you as well. I mean, I'm, I'm totally open to everyone's dietary needs and whatnot. And, but I, I feel like if you have to, you have to see if you're going to eat something, you have to see how it's made and you have to see how it's processed, whether it's vegetables, meat or fish. And I feel like if you can't do that, then maybe, you know, you lose that, that feeling of care for that ingredient. And I think that's why it's so important to have that empathy for a farmer or a forager or someone who fishes or someone who raises meat. And yeah, I mean, I'm sorry to go down that rabbit hole, but I don't know, just the whole idea of foraging and just getting your food is something that it can't be overstated how important it is. Um, yeah. And I, like I said, it was just a special moment. It was cool to hang out with my dad and my friend who I haven't seen in a while. It's cool to be back home this week. And yeah, I mean, that's, that's it on the foraging aspect of this episode. Um, very excited for, you know, next spring. I'm really want to take full advantage of the season next spring. Um, but yeah, it was nice to have at least a week to go out and get those ramps and whatnot. And I think what's really also important is going out and giving what you getting when you forage items and giving it to other restaurants. So I actually I collected 12 pounds yesterday of ramps and brought six pounds to my chef Ross, who you if you've been listening to the show by now, you know who he is. Um, and just going and giving him that because it's cool. It's very cool to go and give him um, ramps because I know he was struggling to get out because of how much how busy he was this week. And it's just a nice gesture, and it just makes me feel good that I was able to help him in some way and put food out onto the restaurant in some way and help them do what they'd like to do with it. And, yeah, I mean, it all comes full circle. Um, yeah. So go out and forage. Go get ramps. Uh, pickle, ferment, you know, do whatever you need. But just be empathetic of the people who grab your produce for you, the people who raise food for you, and the people who kind of make it possible for you to be a chef. And at the end of the day, if you show empathy, you show respect, and you show that you're willing to, you know, give the highest form of, of respects to farmers and producers and whatnot, you're going to get a lot more in return than if you just, you know, order something without really caring where it comes from, or order something without really having at least some respect of what you're doing. And I think that's why the most successful restaurants and restaurant groups have recipes that go into detail with what they specifically want to use and what they specifically need. And I think that's very important to have standards and have a high level of what you want to do and a high level of respect for the ingredients that you use and just putting your all into everything that you do. And that's really why it's important for me to go foraging. And that's like I said, that's kind of ends our empathetic uh, portion of the podcast, but not only having empathy for cooks and chefs and the people in the kitchen, but the people outside of the kitchen and having the respect to use the product in the best way to the fullest way so that you're not just being disrespectful to the hard, hard work that a farmer or a forager have put in. So just be mindful of that. Be mindful of what you're using in terms of your ingredients. And yeah, that's the end of this empathetic uh, part. Let me know what you think on Instagram. Feel free to DM me, message me, whatever you got to do. But very excited for um, what you all think about having empathy in the kitchen. And before we get uh, further into the podcast, I just want to take a quick two minutes to have a word from our sponsor, the Anchor app. Um, They've been something that's been really great for me, and I just want to be able to do a couple ads for them because they've been really helpful in promoting my podcast and getting me out there and really being a free-to-use app. So really always want to share the love with them. So here we go.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I just wanted to, uh, before we got into the line click thoughts, I just wanted to talk about the Impossible Foods real quick. So Impossible Impossible Foods is a plant-based meat substitute. Um, So I got to try it before I got to try it uh, at the CIA. I was able to do it with a couple of other students. And the Impossible Burger, I really like. I'm a very big fan of it. Uh, It kind of really tastes like a burger. It looks like a burger. Uh, There's a little bit of a difference between, obviously, a burger and what this is. But I think as meat substitutes go this is the closest i've ever seen to actual meat and this week they've just been their stocks have been rising and they've been getting a lot of investors uh they were able to raise 300 million dollars in their last round of funding and its total amount of funding has come to 750 million dollars in terms of the company's funding for their projects and now they're getting a lot of high profile investors and these include jay-z will i am jayden smith trevor noah zed and Katy perry and I think it's really interesting to see that because it's not just chefs uh, reaching out to Impossible Foods and investing in them. It's celebrities. It's people who are prominent in our in our society one way or the other. And I really see the tide of meat substitutes really turning. And this is something that is going to be very, very um, influential in the next couple of years, very profitable in Impossible Meats. I'm very excited for them because, you know, there there's a lot of demand for their product now and it's gonna be interesting to see how they are able to keep up with it but um yeah i'm just very excited for the meat substitute war to actually happen and for this to start to take place i mean i always love a good burger as you'll hear me talk about shake shack but i also like when we're being more responsible and conscious of things and able to put ourselves out there and make food that is more sustainable for the environment so definitely excited for the impossible burger uh, and the success, success is happening. Uh, feel free to check out the stories. Um, and you know, Ido put one out. It's pretty much everywhere. Once I got these investors, um, everyone's been kind of commenting on it. But I just wanted to make you aware of it in case you have never tried the Impossible Burger or never even heard of it. It's something that Burger King is using in their Whoppers. Um, it's really just transcending just cooks, and it's going into mainstream right now. So I'm really excited for what the future holds for them. Uh, let me know what you think of the Impossible Burger, if you've had it, if you like it, if you don't. Uh, the only thing I say will say I didn't like about it is when you cook it, it can be very fragile sometimes. So a little difficult to cook sometimes in burger form. Um, I had it a year ago, so maybe they've updated the recipe so it stays together together a little more. Um, but other than that, I thought it was great. I think it's a great substitute, um, and I'm really excited for what the future holds for them. All right, so um, I actually got to go to Shake Shack uh, for the first time. Uh, and I've been living in New York for five months. I know it's crazy. Uh, but yeah, Danny Meyer is someone who I look up to a ton, not only because of his ability to bridge the gap between fine dining and casual food, but also his um, his ability to see what it means to care for a guest and be able to um, just look out for people and look out for your guests and care for the food that you put out onto the table. And so I was very excited to to go to Shake Shack. I haven't gone in a while because, as you all may know, that I've been trying on this weight loss journey where I've been losing weight. I actually just hit 70 pounds down uh, since last August 19th is when I started. So a little less than a year, I was able to lose 70 pounds, which is 
astounding to me. I'm very proud of myself. Um, if you'd like more information on how I did it, I mean, it was really just a natural diet, but um, if you want more information or some any advice or kind of just know what I went through, I mean, I've talked about it before on the podcast, but I'd be interested in talking to anyone, talking to anyone about it. Um, but yeah, I got to go to Shake Shack and it was stellar. I mean, the burger was amazing. Uh, the Shack sauce was uh, to die for. Uh, I really would like more of it. And their half and half uh, iced tea and lemonade, their Arnold Palmer was really good. I went to the location in Grand Central and it was great. Um, and I, I enjoyed it for a lot of reasons uh, because I know how important Danny Meyer is to the food scene. And it's really impressive to see someone who has these fine dining restaurants or sit down restaurants and just to see how much attention to detail he puts into the Shake Shack brand. I mean, I went there and they had a uh, partnership with Game of Thrones, the biggest show on TV. It's it's crazy just to think about that, how a chef who owns a burger chain is able to partner with the biggest show on TV in the past decade to come up with menu items. Um, the store had Mass Chocolate, which is a chocolate uh, company based out of Brooklyn, and they were partnered with them on making their own Shake Shack chocolate bar. And just the list goes on of the things that they're able to do and what they're able to partner with. And it's just astounding. And so Shake Shack, 10 out of 10, probably one of the best, probably the best, yeah, the best burger chain I've been to. Um, closely skating by Wendy's, which is my, was my favorite until now. Um, yeah, I'll have to list my favorite chains later. That's another discussion, but, uh, cause I don't really eat at them anymore, but, um, yeah, Shake Shack, I mean, definitely we'll be going back. Definitely craving another burger. Um, but like I said, just the attention to detail, the focus on the customer, I felt very involved when I ordered my food. They were very, I mean, I, I like to ask questions like, you know, what's in this chocolate bar that's made between Shake Shack and Mass? Why is it different? What's the Game of Thrones promotion about? Like, what are you all doing in terms of partnering with them? And then going into detail on like what I should get on my burger, I ended up getting the classic burger. They said, if it's my first time, this is definitely what you should order. So I did that. And I mean, just to be able to a have a successful chain like he has or cha- i don't even want to call it chain because the food's so great um and i feel like that is used as a negative word nowadays but just to have a successful lineup of burger restaurants uh sitting in one of the busiest parts of new york city grand central station i mean kudos to him for that and all the other locations he has around the city and then just to have this really high quality product served at a really low price point. I mean, I think the burger was $5 and the drink, I think it ended up being like eight bucks for my meal, which is kind of insane because New York city, if you've ever lived there, it's very expensive and his price point was really unbeatable. And so to make food for the people that was very accessible, very, um, affordable, like very, it was priced very good, very fairly. Um, yeah, I mean, I just really enjoyed it. And he, he blows me away. I mean, in the book setting the table, it's something that I've read, and I actually am going to be starting to read reading again soon after I finish the book I'm reading now. And he's just been a great role model. He's a great icon in our industry. Um, I know a lot of you listen to Gary Vaynerchuk, and you listen to me. Um, so if you're interested in listening to Gary Vee talk to Danny Moyer, he actually doesn't ask Gary Vee show with him, uh, if you look it up on YouTube. And I thought it was very interesting seeing um, someone in the business industry talk to uh, Danny Meyer because he's such a successful businessman and such a successful restaurateur and I think the interview really touches on his philosophies and ideas and if you've never read Setting the Table and you want to get more behind what Danny Meyer stands for what he believes in in terms of cooking and 
um, making food for other people, you definitely should check out that because Gary does a great job of interviewing him and getting him to kind of, you know, give out what makes his food so special and why he is so successful in the restaurant industry. So feel free to check that out. I think it's a great video, but I just want to sing some praise for Danny Meyer, his whole group, um, and just everything he does because he's just someone who I look up to a lot because of how successful he's been, how he's been able to put so much respect into the different themes of restaurants he's done and how he's able to make an empire of not only a restaurant group, but an entire empire based around burgers. And, you know, you don't find that often. And someone so successful as him comes, I believe, with being empathetic, knowing what people want, knowing what people need, knowing what people are going to expect when they walk into your door or walk up to your burger stand. And I don't think you get this far in the restaurant industry without being empathetic. I mean, great chefs like Thomas Keller and Dominique Crenn, um, everyone who is successful in the restaurant industry has some sort of empathetic value to them that they're able to pass on and they're able to show to their cooks. And that's why other people are successful. But I just think it's a great time uh, to be watching in the industry. And I think people like Danny Meyer are the people to look up to if you want to be successful. So thank you, Danny Meyer, if you ever get to listen to this. And thank you, Shake Shack, for giving me a great meal and also responding to me on Twitter. Now, when I said I love the burger, you said it was love at first bite. I thought that was very cool. So thank you to the social media team for staying on top of your marketing and re- reaching out to me who has like 18 followers on Twitter. So thank you so much. And yeah, well, go to Shake Shack. It's a great time. All right, y'all, it's the time of the podcast where I share some of my favorite line cook thoughts from the week. Um, got a lot of cool different uh, got a lot of different thoughts come in today. A lot of good uh, engagement on these posts, and I just wanted to share them. So the first one's, first one's coming from Chef uh, Felix Martinez, or Chef.Fifi, and he says, Why am I a chef? I truly believe that was a talent that was given to me by God, and being a chef pushes me to be the best version of myself in all aspects of life. Food connects every human being in all aspects of life, uh, from past, present, and future. What would I change in the industry? I'd love to change kitchen culture from a screaming, thick skin, negative pressure, substance abuse, sexual harassment environment to a positive, energetic, purposeful balance of work and family life. I mean, I agree. It's very important to have that balance. It's very important to respect everyone in the kitchen. Um, you know, the theme of empathy this whole episode, but um, being able to understand each other, being able to accept each other's uh, influences and accept who we are as people and just being able to accept where we come from. I think it's very um, encouraging to have a chef like Chef Felix uh, really talk about this and really just give his opinion on where he thinks the industry should go. So thank you for sharing. That definitely means a ton. Um, This next one's coming from at Martin underscore Verano. And he says, I'm a chef because I believe from an early age, I had very nostalgic feelings when I ate something that reminded me of a place or a time. Food happens to be my deepest and fondest memories from childhood. I'm also pretty sure I can name the first time I tasted some ingredients. Mushrooms, shrimp, asparagus. At least I can remember a very early time when I had full recognition of memory with certain ingredients. As far as change in the industry, we have to understand and adapt to change as the future belongs to those who embrace change and make something positive out of their time and talents. I hope the advancement in technology doesn't make cooks lazy and use the many tools available now to develop a new culinary era focused on food responsibility and consciousness. So much in this quote. Um, first off, yeah, the feeling of nostalgia is something that I find so special. You know, e- eating certain things and just getting thrown back in time to your childhood is, is one of the many reasons why I love cooking. Um, and yeah, I mean, in terms of technology, I'm excited to see where technology is too. And I really hope we don't use that lose that human touch of preparing food. I mean, I know technology advances and things are going to be getting more efficient, but there's something special about being a cook and being a chef in the industry. And I just hope we don't lose that personal touch that a lot of people and different personalities bring. And as far as, you know, remembering certain ingredients and 
being able to adapt to change while working with them. I just think it's special to know your roots and know where you come from and know what ingredients you love the most so that when you go out into the industry, you're able to do really well and be able to just thrive and be a good chef and a good cook and a good leader. This last cook is coming in from at Devin Whistler 1987 or 1987. And I really like this quote. Uh, he says, hi, I'm Devin. He's a chef uh, at a senior living center. And I've worked frying fish to fine dining. I've cooked for 16 years, and one day it dawned in me that I needed a change of pace. I needed a challenge. Well, I got one. This job really brings your ego down. These residents become your best friend, and one day they are gone. It hurts a lot, more than any cut or burn, but it makes every dish, every piece of food you prepare for them, mean so much more. You could be making their last meal. doesn't matter how tired I am. I've worked 70 hours a week for a few months here, and still, it means nothing compared to what that plate of food will do to make them smile. And... This quote really, I mean, it got a lot of good responses. And for me, it was just a beautiful thing because uh, Chef Devin, just thank you so much for feeding people um, in a senior living center. I think it's so, it's such a, it's such a topic that we don't talk about, you know, feeding the people who are, you know, potentially leaving this earth and going on to things and being able to still impact their lives through food, even though they may be on their way out of here or they may, you know, be passing soon. It's a sad thing to think about. And it's very good to show respect to them. And I think the, one of the biggest ways is to ensure that they're enjoying themselves with the time they have left. And definitely giving them good food is a big part of that. And, you know, I don't know. I don't know if I could do that. I mean, I would love to. I actually got to go out in California last year to deliver food that we prepared to a, a couple of uh, centers for veterans. And that was very special for me. Um, I'm not sure how I would handle being able to cook for someone that might not be here tomorrow. I know that's a, that is probably such an emotional thing to go through. And have to do on top of the stress of cooking. So I don't know. Um, I really love the quote and I definitely have mad respect for Devin and all the other chefs out there who work in these living centers. And I just really hope that, um, you know, I really hope that your food impacts more and more people throughout your time. And I just, it's cool to see that there's other things that can be done with food other than going for awards. So thank you, uh, Devin for sharing that. Uh, my last big announcement is uh, make sure you check out um, at Chef Michael Zabrowski on Instagram or at Michael Zabrowski on Instagram. I just put up the new desserts he has for his spring menu at the American Bounty Restaurant. They look beautiful. Um, they look delicious. So very excited to share those with y'all. And yeah, that's pretty much it. Um, excited for the next couple of interviews. We're going to be releasing the schedule schedule soon of who I have coming onto the podcast. But um, yeah, it's been great. Thank you so much for the line cook thoughts they've been sending me. I'm very excited for spring. I know a lot of you are too. And yeah, sorry for the lack of Instagramming this past week. I was able to go visit my family this last week. So I spent I got a lot of time with them hanging out and, you know, it wasn't on the Instagram as much. I hope y'all can understand that. And yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Thank you as always for the support. And yeah, thank just thank you. I mean, I'm blown away by the support and the experiences I'm having and very grateful every week to put out this podcast. Sorry for it being late once again, but we'll see you this Sunday uh, with an interview with Chef Jenny Dorsey. Very excited to talk talking with her. We actually had to do two parts because um, our first part of our podcast went over what we thought we would do. So she will be back, but I'm very excited for you to hear the conversation for this week. Thank you so much, Lankly Nation. We'll see you on the next podcast.